Okay, Be'ezras Hashem, we're starting our final work of the Rambam, Morin but I want to spend a couple days of, before going into the text for a number of reasons. First of all, I don't think uh, Martin has the text yet. I don't want to be behind. It's hard to get a hold of these texts. So, and uh, I want to couch this a little bit because it's going to probably be the hardest thing we've been learning in the Rambam. It's very hard. Well, that was hard too. But this is like a harder in a different way. So, I was looking around. I wanted to find something that could help us in, in a language that's easier for us. So, I found this interesting article by a Rabbi Moshe Becker, who's a reliable person. He has smicha from good places and things like that. So, you have to be careful. There's all kinds of scholars about the Rambam and the Rabbi Korsen. So, we got to be careful. You just can't go to any website or anywhere. So, you want to find something that really reflect a fairly balanced thing. And he the article is called The Timeless Message of Mor Nebuchim. And I think for today, we'll just read it um, because I, it touches on a lot of important issues. Um, as as he, he says it better, you don't need any introductions from me. So, uh, one sec, just got to make sure that... Uh, Alex can see this. I don't think we're sharing it with him. Uh, can I just get it on Safari? No, no, it's not on Safari. I'm going to share it with you, Alex. Okay. Well, on second. If it doesn't work, don't. don't yeah, I can just no, no, it'll we're work. Gonna get it. We're going to get it for you. Safari, I haven't decided yet if I want to use Safari or not. Okay, now, let's just move this over. Contemporary study of Mora Nebuchim has become almost exclusively the occupation of academics and students of medieval philosophy. Little, if any, serious attention is given to Rambam's great philosophical treatise in many yeshivas. In other words, he's acknowledging, you look at secular scholars, they really get into the Rambam. But the yeshiva world, it's not something that's brought up in the curriculum. It's, it's just not looked at. So that already is something to think about. Even the classic yeshivas in Tells, I didn't learn it. You go to Brisk. They'll learn it. They still learn it. Who learns it? You know, uh, reform rabbis learn it. Bible scholars learn it. Philosophers learn it. I don't know if they learn Mar Nebuchim. They're learning everything else in the Rambam. I don't know about Mar Nebuchim either. So anyway, this is perhaps too broad a generalization, and certainly issues are more complex, yet such a trend can be discerned, which I would agree with. The following essay will suggest that in contrast to the attitude mentioned, Marnevuchim can in fact be a relevant text and source of inspiration to a Torah student even today. I'll be using Rambam's treatment of the creation as our model. This is not to imply that study of Mordechai in the context of medieval Jewish philosophy alone is not a worthwhile pursuit. In other words, there's nothing wrong with him understanding Rambam in the context of the world he lived in. But frankly, who, we're not going to be interested. If you're a scholar, scholars like to learn things that have nothing to do with reality. So maybe the Chasvishom, this Mordechai, it's a great work, and it was a great work in the 13th century, but has no application today. 
So unless you're just a scholar for the sake of scholarship, you can learn. And he said there's nothing wrong with that, but my intention is to present that I believe to be the overall purpose of Marnevuchim and its primary content and thereby address some objections that could be raised against studying Marnevuchim as a relevant text or even as a fulfillment of Talmud Torah. So what he's going to say is, it is a relevant text, and you are fulfilling the mitzvah of learning Torah when you're learning the Rambam, and it's not merely a philosophical game we're playing. That's the intent of this article, and I figured that's a good article for us to go through to really convince ourselves <laughs> that when we get into the difficult philosophical realms to say that there are people who believe that it really is. And again, this was the last work of the Rambam. So we learned everything in the Rambam, so, you know, in Brisk, they'll learn the, the Yad Chazaka, very important. Everything is, you know, and, and all the halachic things, it's amazing. But this, I don't believe there's an art scroll on Mornavuchim. Okay, there's an art scroll on, you know, or Feldheim on everything else, on Masilis Yeshorim and Der Hashem and all these, but not on Mornavuchim, which is interesting. Because those are also philosophical. Was yes. So wasn't this the one that was burned? We'll see the... now. Okay. To clarify the context of the discussion, I'll begin with an overview of the main schools of thought regarding the purpose and content of Maranavuchim and some of the difficulties associated with them. The natural place to expect to find the purpose of a book is in the author's introduction. Yet Rabbam's description of the content of Maranavuchim appears to fall short of actually providing this information. A simple reading of the introduction to Mar Nevuchim reveals two purposes the author attributed to the book. The first is to explain certain terms and phrases found in the Torah which appear to be incompatible with an all-encompassing rational understanding of the world. Here Rambam describes his reader as an individual who's committed to Torah perfected his person, and has studied the natural sciences and philosophy. This person has come to appreciate the place of the intellect and feels that a rational position at time conflicts with a simple reading of the Torah, such as where anthropomorphic references to God are found. In other words, he's trying to balance what the Torah says with what our understanding of reality is. Now, how are you going to tell me that God has a hand? Okay, so that's one thing he discusses. The second objective, Murna Vukhan writes Rama, is to identify and at times explain sections of the Torah that are to be understood allegorically. Chief among these are the doctrines of Masa Bereshis, the creation, and the Maisa Merkava, the description of the chariot of Hashem that the Navi talks about, Yecheskel. Rambam says that these esoteric doctrines, along with several others, were intended to be understood figuratively. And the Rambam wished to explain as much of their message as possible. However, one wishes to broaden the meaning of these statements in the introduction. It is clear that Marnavuchim goes well beyond exegesis, explaining text, even of the complex matters referred to. Lengthy argumentation detailing the precise, legit, logical foundations for proving God's existence. This is what he does in the book, too. Attacks against proofs that Rambam felt were incorrect. 
That's what he also does. And the lengthy discourse of God's incorporeality, meaning he has no physicality, and attributes. And a detailed analysis of the philosophical underpinnings of the creation versus eternity question. In other words, was the world always there? Or did God create the world? He gets into that. Are but some of the areas where Rambam extends himself far beyond instruction in an intellectually satisfying and rational reading of the Torah. At the same time, it's hardly fair to ignore the words of an author describing his book and its purpose. And I believe that my essay will also serve to address this difficulty. In other words, the Rambam is telling you the introduction of what he's talking about, but then he talks about so much more than that. To all appearances, Marna Vichum seems to be a philosophical work, addressing all or most of the issues facing philosophers in the Middle Ages. Rambam brings the opinions of the different philosophers on these issues and argues for those which he felt were correct, usually favoring Aristotle's positions. In general, Aristotle's opinions are the logical framework for much of Rambam's discussion. And one not need be full versed in Rambam's works to realize that he held Aristotle in a very high esteem. Okay? Most medieval readers of Mardavuchim viewed the work as a reckoning between the Torah and Aristotelian science. That's what they think this book is about. Rambam does not only align the Torah with Aristotelian thought as much as possible. A general characteristic of Nora Ravuchim is the attempt to rationalize more oblique elements of the Torah and place them in a more understandable, conceptual framework. He tries to make certain ideas more understandable. The reading of Ravuchim led to two types of reactions. Readers who were philosophically oriented and viewed Aristotelian science as authoritative embraced Nora Ravuchim as a synthesis between two important sources of truth, the Torah and philosophy. Look, this is great. We got Judaism and, 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 and what's his name? Aristotle. They're, we, they're together. It's the same thing. This is great. On the other hand, those who are not inclined to accepting philosophy as a viable source of truth felt that murder of was quite dangerous. The enterprise of reconciling Torah and philosophy obviously carries with it an endorsement of something other than Torah as a source of truth. This is at best a foreign, at worst a dangerous idea threatening to undermine basic acceptance of Torah as the ultimate source of wisdom. The two opposing viewpoints and the reactions to Mernavuchim that they engendered evolved into an ongoing controversy. Beginning already in Rambam's lifetime, the ensuing centuries-long dispute led to much acrimony in the Jewish community. Early on already, Mardavuchim was banned by some communities, eventually leading to Christian authorities publicly burning the book. Okay. For their part, the individuals and communities who embraced Mardavuchim concentrated their efforts on interpretation and exploring precisely how Rambam went about resolving conflict within the Torah and philosophy. A large number of Torah scholars and philosophers wrote commentaries on Mora Nebuchim with this goal, including those who translated the work from its original Arabic to Hebrew, every translation necessarily containing an element of interpretation as well. 
And we'll see, there were many commentaries on the Rambam, Abarbanel, very classic, accepted Jewish commentaries, were explaining the Rambam and showing that it is, there's no clear in the Rambam. To a certain degree, the prevailing attitude towards Moranavuchim in the Jewish community today, which I described at the beginning of this essay, is really a modern, perhaps more passive form of the same conflict. Some of the greatest opponents to Moranavuchim and study of philosophy in general were the great leaders of their generation and respected as towering figures in Torah and halachic ruling. For this reason, their position regarding Mornavuchim was accepted by many, if not outright, at the very least by default. As teachers, they were the ones setting the patterns of study for students, ultimately in fight affecting the entire constituency. Study of philosophy, which had actually been formally banned for younger students, came to be regarded as a less than legitimate occupation, and Mornavuchim remained an object of some suspicion. Eventually, this approach pervaded a good deal of Jewish community. I don't know what this word is, adumbrating. The current situation, I guess, resulting in many yeshivas where Mornavuchim is largely ignored. Again, I don't know of very many really Haredi black hat yeshivas that teach it as part of the curriculum. Among those who do study Mornavuchim, the approach has remained similar to that of the medieval readers. And Mordevuchim is seen as some type of reckoning between the Torah and the Aristotelian science, which Rambam adopted. Once again, to a strict traditionalist, the suggestion that Aristotelian science is something of reckoned with is itself a problematic position. There is, however, one major difference between then and now. In the Middle Ages, much more was at stake as Aristotle's description of natural world was largely accepted as true. In our time, it is in rationalism itself that has come to be looked upon as incompatible with Torah, while Aristotelian science can hardly be viewed as a serious threat. I believe that this difference leaves more room for the approach I'm going to suggest. The difficulties with understanding Mornavuchim as an attempted reconciliation between the Torah and Aristotle goes beyond the religious issue of Rambam having accepted foreign sources of truth. In the first place, if it is true that Rambam's goal was to present a rendering of Torah compatible with Aristotle's philosophy, he failed to do so. Aside from the very obvious point of creation ex nihilo, Yesh Me'ayin, where Rambam openly rejects Aristotle's position, okay, that the world always existed. The basic ideas of hashkacha and reward and punishment are not reconciled with Aristotle. So the Rambam clearly rejects many fundamental things that Aristotle says. Furthermore, the idea of a God-given Torah is hardly a concept that fits in with Aristotle's conception of God's role in the world. Aristotle's view of natural law is purely deterministic, and God, although casually prior to the universe, cannot in fact change anything about the world. As Rabbam himself points out, this position is entirely at odds with the concept of God giving the Torah to a chosen people. So that's already the biggest proof he is not trying to conform the Torah to Aristotle because there's too many fundamental principles of Aristotle that he totally rejects. 
Different authors sought to resolve these difficulties in various ways, some of their conclusions highly original. On the one hand, the most extreme harmonists truly believed that Rama was teaching a doctrine that interpreted the Torah as Aristotelian philosophy. Faithful to this understanding, they wrote commentaries explaining and clarifying Maradavuchim and revealing the secrets of the collusion of Torah and Aristotelian science. They had no compunctions about doing this and stated clearly that they that where there appears to be an ambiguity in Maradavuchim, the passage should be interpreted so as to agree with Aristotle. In their original works as well, the attempt at achieving interpretation of the Torah in accordance with Aristotelian science can be seen. Remember, you're talking about something written in Arabic, translated into Hebrew, very ambiguous. So we'll try to just uh, catch it in that he's trying to agree with everything of Aristotle. We would not agree with that. At this point, the idea of an esoteric message in Moranavuchim formed. There are in fact many vague statements and even entire section of Moradavuchim which are puzzling. But the main catalyst for this idea is Rambam's declaration's introduction that the book contains contradictions. He writes that in the introduction, you're going to find contradictions in my book. Locating these contradictions and discovering their meaning is a pursuit that is take, was taken up soon after the book's appearance and continues today. This enterprise was crucial to the development of the various approaches to Mernavuchim and to Rambam as an individual. In the Middle Ages, it was thought by many authors that Rambam was actually perpetuating an existing secret philosophical Jewish tradition that he concealed beneath the surface of Mernavuchim. And they in turn saw themselves as the bearers of that tradition, cognizant as they were of Rambam's true message. Their method focused on using the contradiction as keys to the areas where Rambam sought to indicate that Aristotle's position is the true opinion of the Torah. Okay, so they're trying to figure this, this esoteric kind of way of understanding things. The opposition to this view in terms of methodology agree that the key to understanding Moradavuchim is by way of the esoteric message, particularly by using the tool of locating contradictions. However, the method they used was not one of harmonization, but rather bringing out the full extent of the contradiction. In this way, they attempted to show that the hidden message in Marnevuchim is that often Aristotle's positions are to be adopted over those over the Torah. The scholars who follow this approach maintain that Ramam used a contradiction to conceal his true beliefs as an Aristotelian. This is certainly something that we would reject. Okay. Between these two very different methods and conclusions is a wide range of attempts to grapple with the difficulties in Mernavuchim without adopting either extreme. These attempts were characteristic of Torah leaders and scholars in the 16th to 18th centuries when the need to contend with the Aristotelian elements was no longer so great. It was Aristotle was fell out. It's not necessary to review them in this context, though it is interesting to note that the turmoil and confusion surrounding Marduruchim was so great as he elicited such curious resolutions as denying Rambam's authorship of Marduruchim, or conversely, of Rambam's halachic work, Mishnah Torah. They couldn't believe, how could the same guy write two things? Either one was fake or the other was fake. That was the extremes. All the approaches mentioned take for granted that Marnavuchim is somehow intended to deal with Torah versus 
Aristotelian science. What is the true message and how one goes about finding it are fascinating, perhaps important questions. From the Torah perspective, though, there's a more troubling and fundamental issue. That is, the conclusion one is bound to reach if, in fact, Mardavuchim is a work centered on Aristotle's science. Setting aside the objection to recognizing philosophy as an independent source of truth, Aristotle's physics, which formed the basic foundation of Rambam's logic and philosophy, is no longer relevant. Modern science has an entirely different understanding of the world than that held by Aristotle. Consequently, Rambam's opinions, as expressed in Moritz are basically fossilized, frozen in time, and of interest only as a remarkable work of medieval philosophy. It has virtually no relevance to us and perhaps would not even be valued as Torah studied based as it is on an obsolete secular system. Even if one were to align oneself with those medieval Torah scholars who subscribed to Aristotelian content of Mernavuchim, he would have difficulty finding justification for such an approach today. We began with what the author describes as a work of Torah literature designed to clarify and explain the full concepts in the Torah and are left with basically a fascinating relic. One way to look at it. A careful look at one of the topics treated in Mardavuchim suggests an alternative approach. The topic of creation has not been overlooked by earlier authors. On the contrary, it provides much material for the ongoing discussion of Rambam's intentions. The problems with the creation discussion in Mernavuchim are well known. On the one hand, Rambam insists repeatedly that creation ex nihilo is the position of the Torah. On the other hand, in his discussion of prophecy, Rambam equates three views of prophecy with the three positions on creation. The view of prophecy, which Rambam says is the Torah one of prophecy, is parallel to the opinion that matter is eternal, the Platonic position, and not the creation ex nihilo. That's a serious problem. Moreover, at the very beginning of section 2 of Mernavuchim, Rambam enumerates the axioms which form the logical background for proving God's existence. Paradoxically, the 26th axiom is the eternity of the universe. The position Rambam so strongly argues against later in the book. See, these are the contradictions. contradictions. These various challenges in understanding Rambam led to some of the most extreme readings of Mornavuchim referred to above. Various commentators sought to explain or explain away these contradictions and their resolutions in term have been duly examined. The conclusions are unsatisfying and often stretch incredulousness. It is not my intention to address these issues here. I would however like to make a few simple observations. If we strip the core points of Rambam's discourse on creation of the language and philosophical context it is presented in, we see a striking phenomenon. Rambam's position, which he presents unequivocally, is that of the Torah is simply stated with virtually no justification or philosophical support. True, Rambam devotes several chapters to addressing the theories of eternity, yet very little argumentation is actually given to establish the scientific or philosophical validity of creation ex nihilo. For Rambam, the simple point that creation ex nihilo is a necessary part of the Torah suffices. 
This point is very straightforward as repeated several times by the Rambam. If the world exists eternally, God is not a willing creator, rather the prime mover of Aristotle and is subject to natural law. In this deterministic model, God cannot perform miracles nor give his Torah to the Jews and elevate his chosen people. Reward and punishment, the results of a God-appointed ethic are impossible. Belief in creation, on the other hand, is an affirmation of God's free will as well as man's enabling man to fill a designated role in the universe. In his success, in his insistence that we accept creation ex nihilo and reject eternity, Rambam is making a theological statement, not taking a scientific stance on cosmology. This can be seen in his arguments against eternity. Rambam hardly makes any effort to refute the arguments for eternity. The only argument that he does not treat seriously are the ones that carry theological significance. For example, Aristotle points out that the idea of creation ex nihilo necessarily apply, implies a change in God. That's why Aristotle didn't like it. He said God has to change. There was no world, not as a world. So God changed. At one point, God did not will the existence, and so he willed its creation. God changed from a potential creator to an active creator, and any change in God is a direct violation of Rambam's concept of monotheism. So that seems Aristotle would reject that. Change is a positive act which cannot be attributed to God. Rambam admits this difficulty and is ultimately left with something of a dichotomy, but most of his arguments against Aristotle consist of the claim that Aristotle himself did not hold that eternity was proven. Or as he's saying, you haven't proved that either. That and the simple fact that creation lies at the foundation of belief in the Torah make up the entirety of Rambam's argument. He says, that's just the way it is. That's it. Well, the entire section of our creation is firmly with a clear philosophical reasoning. At the end of the day, Rambam is not making a scientific point, rather relying on a religious, almost dogmatic appeal. Okay, we'll stop it over here, and we'll continue and uh, finish this introduction up tomorrow. And I think it's worthwhile to uh, just to get some some ideas on this. All right. Yashir Alex, good to have you.